0: Hello, welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Const. We are 33 days away from the deadline to save this democratic experiment. If you aren't scared for the country right now, you may be watching too many apocalypse movies or playing way too many video games. The corporate media looks at this chaos and sees Joe Biden ahead and Trump, Trump disintegrating. I look at it best and see the biggest most blatant voter suppression campaign in history, run personally by the President of the United States. I look at this and see the groundwork being laid by Donald Trump to defy his defeat. I look at this and I see enablers in the media, even in the supposed left media, who even after all we have been through, cannot draw a line at violent white supremacists and say, you can call yourself a proud boy, but we see you as the racists you are. And, and and at you, we draw a line and won't give you a platform to spread your stink and your danger. And that means we won't accept a president who dances with you. The only place Donald Trump seems to practice social distancing is with racists and fascists who he wants on his side, but don't want to be called out for it. He is the, quote, last racist person we know, the least, excuse me, least racist person we know, the president once told us. Mm Mm-hmm. That's why he doesn't condemn the Proud Boys, why he tells them to stand by while we see how the voting goes. And then he tries to wriggle past the obvious racist intent by saying he meant they should stand back and let law enforcement do its job. What job? The job of beating up progressives? The job of terrifying black voters and killing them? The job of plowing through activists? The job of throwing so much muck at our election that it ends up in the courts or in Congress? Not to mention there are organized white supremacy cells within law enforcement that are actively, actively being investigated by the FBI, his FBI. Remember, if this election does get thrown to the courts or Congress, Trump will probably be declared the winner. Of course, there is one way to prevent that, if, and, and we know this, to, pe- to beat him in this election by margins so large that all his lies and mail balloting, all, all the ones about the mail balloting, all his slander of election officials, all his fascist attacks on the American democratic system, they won't amount to a hill of beans next to the landslide of voters against him. It really is that simple. Now, I want to say a word to my colleagues in the media and to Joe Rogan specifically, who I know we've had words in the past, but please, you have to hear me on this. This is something that's happening behind the scenes. A lot of conversations with leftists in the media have been talking about this for a long time. I believe deeply in hearing a diversity of voices. We've had conservatives and moderates on this show for debates, dissent and debate Are core values of our politics. But for the next 33 days, we need to be very aware of what Trump is doing. And we need to be diligent and strategic at not doing things that enable him or play into his fascist hands. Dorsey, can we play that clip uh, of Joe Rogan?
1: The, the reason why I brought up Gavin is that I think that there, I have had a couple podcasts with him, and people have had like weird conversations with me sure. about it. And yeah. I've, I've said, this is one of the things that I've said. I was like, look, that guy's mostly fun. Yeah. Mostly fun. Uh, I started this gang called the Proud Boys. and the Proud uh, Boys? The Proud Boys. What is the, what's Proud Boys about?
2: We will kill you. That's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. We will kill you. We look nice. All we right, seem soft. We have boys part, in so our name. But totally like flat. Bill.
1: I think it's our job to do it.
0: Fuck you, damn, boys, fuck you.
1: And the cup to turn a blind eye. If you're wearing a MAGA hat, as Sal is right now, Sal's in the studio, folks. Oh my god, it's Sal Cipolla. Where are you from? On here why came came wearing a, a mega hat and some guy with a slightly punk demeanor comes up to you and says hey are you sal or are you pro-trump choke him
0: okay let's get back trust
1: your one instincts one don't there. listen to what he has to say choke him
0: let's let's get out bricks, we
1: should part. throw bricks and you call
2: for violence generally because i am
0: okay. fighting I think we've solves seen everything you can go and check out that full clip um at vic berger he is on twitter Uh, that was Gavin McGinnis. Frankly, Joe Rogan, I'm speaking to you. When you interview, quote, your friend, Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the white supremacist group Proud Boys, you make it easier for Trump to then act like they are among those good people on the other side. Joe Rogan, these are not good people. Let's call them by their names. The Proud Boys are violent racists. They're white supremacists. They declare it themselves openly online in person and on the airwaves that allow them to speak like your show they get away with it they even said it the cops turn a blind eye they incite and take part in violence and murder now i want to be very clear about this they have a first amendment right to speak as uncomfortable as it may be at least up to the point that they advocate violence against people That is the limitation of free speech, inciting violence. Crying fire in a crowded theater is not free speech. Remember the First Amendment is about keeping the government keeping hands off of our right to speak, to publish, to protest and assemble. Let me say that again. Remember that the First Amendment is about the government keeping hands off of our right to speak, to publish, to protest and assemble. I defend the right of whoever, Proud Boys included, to speak, even though I detest what they say. But the right to speak isn't a right to go on Joe Rogan's show. I hate to call you out, Joe, but this isn't about The Joe Rogan Show offering a diversity of views. It's about Joe Rogan reaching a diversity of audience so we can make more money, get more clicks, grow his audience. Pull from the online left. Pull from the online right. The audience grows. Then you get big $10 million deals with Spotify, a publicly traded company. You have big guests on, like Bernie, controversial white supremacists on, money is made. Oh, it's just a podcast, some of you say to me. I see you on Twitter. No, no, this is not just a podcast. This is a corporately funded program boosted by algorithms with one of the largest audiences in the world. Bigger than Fox audiences. This is not about censorship. Understand the distinction between censorship and platforming. It is about responsibility. It is about editorial oversight of your show, Joe. Oh, but you're just a comedian. You're just a comedian. You don't need editorial oversight with the largest podcast in the world. Thomas Paine had editors. Everybody has editors. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I have debated Gavin McGinnis myself. I get that he is funny, and that the shtick of comedy is what reels people into his dark mission. Eve of Adam and Eve. She probably thought that about the devil too, right? He was charming. But, Joe, you aren't some cellar-dwelling comic anymore. You have a crucial p- platform in our public conversation now. That's why it was such a big deal when you endorsed Bernie Sanders. And I'm I'm glad you did. I just hope you're not moving some of that audience over to danger, to folks that have been deplatformed. Mila Yiannopoulos was deplatformed because he incited violence. Gavin McGinnis just incited violence. And the Proud Boys do not belong on your platform. You are better than that. As recent as a few weeks ago, you called him, quote, a funny guy. In that clip, you saw it. Are you a comic? Or are you interviewing politicians and world figures with audiences larger than primetime news? Remember, Fox News calls themselves an entertainment channel. And that was always their defense. It's entertainment, it's not news. Just think about it, Joe. Would you have put Hitler's brown shirts? And I hate to use that analogy, but that is where we are right now. Would you have put the brown shirts on your show if it were in 1933? Well, the Proud Boys say proudly they stand ready to crush political opposition with fists and guns. They wear swastikas on their arms. They plow through peaceful protesters exercising their free speech. That is not America. It's not who we should be. That is Germany in 1933. These are those brown shirts. The only good thing about this ugly week was that Donald Trump made it very clear that the Proud Boys are his brown shirts. So no one can say later, they did not know what was happening, including you, Joe. You know, there were plenty of people who understood what was going around them, on around them in Germany too. But not enough of them stood quickly enough to draw the line and say, No further. No further. Are your ratings, your ad sales, your viral clips worth not doing what is right? Are you okay with being a gateway to the far right through your comedy and your occasional agreement with leftists? Clearly you know what's happening, Joe Rogan, whether it is what you intended or not. And I know many of you like him, maybe even had an emotional attachment to Joe Rogan. I get it. Don't fall in love with your heroes, right? You know that line. But Rogan needs to take responsibility. He has extraordinary power in a time of extraordinary crisis. It can happen here. We just need to know how it happens and not be afraid of challenging ourselves. I know it is tough. I know our tendencies are to go tribal, us versus them, but we have to think deeper. We have to be able to hold two thoughts in our head at once. I'm, I'm really, really glad that you guys are here today. I think this is an important show. I think this is an important conversation. Um, up next, we will have Dr. Manuel Pastor of USC's Equity Research Institute. We're going to talk about climate equity as California, where USC is located, is ravaged with fires. And then later, we have our returning panelist, Representative Chris Rabb uh, of Pennsylvania, but first, let me talk about a few of the news items that are at the top of my feed. The fraud about mail-in ballots is the claim that they are rife with fraud, right? That's the fraud. So says a new report called The Propaganda War Against Voting by Mail. It's literally the title of it. The report details how Republicans began stirring up fraudulent, the fraudulent claim back in April during the Wisconsin primary in the midst of the pandemic. A Republican PAC spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on national ads condemning mail balloting, even though red and purple states like Utah and Arizona, to say nothing of the military itself, have used mail-in ballots reliably for years. The report says, quote, the threat of robust turnout figures posed by mail-in voting had fully stirred the right-wing propaganda machine. The report was published by Right Wing Watch. It is a project of the advocacy group founded by Norman Lear, People for the American Way. You can read the entire report at rightwingwatch.org. Uh, two of the biggest airlines cut 32,000 workers. Federal support to these mega corporations ran out, so the airlines cut workers. United Airlines furloughed 13,000 workers, sending them to sending them an oh-so-sweet message addressed, quote, departing family members. (laughs) At American, 19,000 staffers were cut. The airline said it couldn't afford to keep them because the CARES Act funding had expired. Friend of the show, Sarah Nelson, who is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, said that federal aid should be extended. Her members said, quote, they don't know how they're going to be able to pay for their rent, feed their families, or cover, cover the cost of prescriptions and medical care major crisis and last how do we combine feminism and socialism we have talked about that here and no doubt we will again in fact we're gonna do it tomorrow on fem friday uh for smart look read mindy isser's in current affairs magazine uh she it's online of course she sums up the challenge in one sentence quote i often wonder what glass ceilings mean to the women whose job it is to wash them Her point, of course, is that installing women in big jobs, even a woman in the White House, is all well and good, but the real feminist victory can be measured in how many women are making more than the minimum wage and can pay their rent, their debts, their kids' medical bills without falling behind. You can read her entire piece at currentaffairs.org. And coming up, we have Dr. Manuel Pastor of the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California. To understand how to create a just economy, a good place to start is just by asking Professor Pastor. We will do just that. And then later we have Representative Chris Rabbi is back. Uh, He is of Philadelphia, perfect timing. He can tell us all about the voter suppression games in Pennsylvania and what's being done to fight back. But before that, make sure to smash that like button. And if you're not already, you can join us on Patreon.com slash The Nomi Keys Show. We are a growing show, as you know, and we want to do more. We want to do more debate nights. We have some really good plans, Uh, more explainers, more clips, more whose side are they on, And that is why patreon is so valuable your commitment of as low as five bucks a month helps us do these things and like i said we have some big plans so you want to be a part of it all right up next we have dr pastor hello welcome back to the nomi key show i heard that the chat is getting fiery I'll have to take a look at that later. Um, I'm wondering has Dr. Harvey K made it in there yet? He likes to show up. Uh, I'm excited to have our next guest on because you know there's just there's 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 so much happening at once, and it's very easy for us to lose sight of the effects of these crises. Uh, Dr. Manuel Pastor is the director of USC's Equity Research Institute. He is also the author of State Resistance what California's dizzying descent and remarkable resurgence means for America's future and equity growth and community. Uh, and I'm sorry, and equity growth and community, what the nation can learn from America, America's metro areas. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Um,
2: Glad to be with you.
0: So I guess uh, the first question I, I have to ask you, being in California, having written about uh, climate change and equity, is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, doing enough right now in the face of all these fires?
2: Boy, that's a pretty uh, tough uh, question to get started with. Um, I Let's just
0: throw him out early.
2: <laughs> I know, exactly, just ping. Uh, I mean, I, there's a, a level of excitement and a level of disappointment. Uh, the level of excitement comes from, for example, the governor Uh, Just a week or two ago, setting a new standard for 2035 that all new vehicles sold in the state of California need to be zero emission and that trucks will have to meet that standard uh, probably about a decade later. But what was best about this uh, pronouncement was that inside of it, there were also restrictions or proposed development of restrictions on oil drilling near communities. That's something that very much plagues communities of color. And there was a lot of uh, language in there with regard to just transition and the provision of jobs to people who have long been frozen out of labor markets. On the other hand, uh, the governor hasn't moved as far forward on fracking as a lot of people would want. Uh, There was environmental justice legislation uh, about toxics that he failed to sign. So um, it's a mixed record but it's also a record in a very difficult political environment because the pressure from business right now not to do anything anti-business and the leverage they're trying to make from this COVID recession to get what they want, it's pretty severe.
0: Hmm. I mean, for those who may not be aware, which I don't know what rock you're living under, uh, California has a supermajority, And so oftentimes activists get frustrated because you know Democrats control California. This isn't Reagan's California anymore. Um, there should be prime opportunities it's I would say probably the most progressive state um, able to affect major changes so uh, this 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 um, power business has over over the legislature and and leadership uh what are the industries that seem to be you know holding holding um leaders from from really taking a seismic moves to combat climate change
2: so um Thank you for mentioning the book, State of Resistance. I'll mention it again, because I think people forget about California. They were the state that gave you Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, tax cuts, anti-immigration hysteria, racist policing and over-incarceration, and an attack on affirmative action. And 25, 30 years later, very, very different state. And a lot of that has to do with social movement organizing and how it changed the political calculus on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing I think to realize at the same time is that while we've got a two-thirds supermajority, we've got a number of business or moderate Democrats that are part of that two-thirds supermajority. It's not all progressive. And indeed, one of the things that business has realized over about the last decade is that uh, betting on a, a... dying Republican Party is not really the way to go. You know, no Republican in this state holds statewide office. And the places that they're hanging on are places that they're increasingly losing power. And you will know from the last midterm elections that basically almost all Republicans left in the state of California got wiped out. Dear God, great news. But it also means that Business is trying to figure out how to play with moderate Democrats because that's the game because they can no longer bet on Republicans because the Republicans can't hold anything back. And that means that there's a real challenge. Two-thirds supermajority doesn't mean two-thirds supermajority for progressive ideas. And the way that we're going to get there is through the kind of grassroots organizing that changes the political dynamics on the ground and means – that the elected officials have to be responsible to grassroots power.
0: Um, you know, while we're on that subject, uh, you have this jungle primary now, and and jungle primary means the top two vote. Gold. It's 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 like terrain trace voting, but not quite. Um, you, you probably understand this more than I do uh, on the ground, but you know, as a result, you have races now where like Shahid Bhutar is up against Nancy Pelosi, and and. Um, and I'm sure many other have been able. Many others have been able to um, reach power. But has that weakened the Republican Party, or did that start before?
2: Um, what's very interesting. This was a you know currently in the state uh, the most popular uh, in terms of registration party is the Democratic Party. Second is decline to state, and third wow. is the Republican Party. So it is a uh, it is what we hope will happen to the National Republican Party, that it so marginalized itself through aligning with business, aligning against climate change, and aligning with xenophobic and racist elements in the state, that it became a permanent minority. And there's a little bit of that that certainly we saw in the 2018 congressional, um, the midterms, and I think we're seeing in 20. 20 as well with republicans hanging on to trump even as trump is representing the sort of dying elements of the republican uh party now in that uh atmosphere it has created opportunities for those kind of runs when we've got this so-called uh jungle system so that uh Progressive Democrats can run against mainstream Democrats and actually not worry about the Republicans actually limping their way into the, uh, you know, general. But it's also a problem because one of the things that happened in uh, uh, Gavin Newsom's last uh, run when he became governor was in the primaries he spent all of his money against the Republican candidate and tied them to uh, Donald Trump. Why did he do that? To knock out Antonio Villarosa, who would have been as somewhat moderate, actually Democratic, but Latino aligned with progressive social movement's competition. But by spending all of his primary money against the right-wing Republican and making people aware that he was running, he lifted that guy, John Cox, up. And it was John Cox who wound up in the general, which meant the following thing huh. in the general gavin newsom had only one debate and that one debate was with john cox on Day public radio at ten thirty in the morning on a monday uh, <laughs> so essentially newsom was able to get in without clearly laying out what he was going to do so there's elements of the jungle primary which are good, which is that progressive Democrats can make their way in. But a smart politician like Gavin Newsom was able to game the system and avoid any serious discussion of what he was going to do. And even as he, you know, was able to avoid that discussion, he's wound up facing the biggest climate catastrophes, the biggest public health catastrophes, some of the biggest catastrophes or discussions around what we need to do about racism without having queued up earlier what he was going to say or do about those things.
0: So interesting. Um you know you you briefly mentioned uh Antonio Villaragosa, who was the mayor of Los Angeles um Latino and and the the the, the politics of the Latino population a uh, growing huge population in California um Probably also affected the Republican, uh, you know, who was in power and how the Republicans lost lost power. But it's also extremely progressive, especially when you look at younger Latinos who DACA whatever people who we know how powerful it was in the Bernie election in terms of Bernie was able to mobilize a tremendous number of young Latinos, and they of course influenced their family, and we saw that all across the Southwest. Uh, but you wrote recently about the Latino vote and the Biden campaign, and. How they're not doing enough, Biden-Harris campaign, is, is not doing enough to excite the Latino vote, and and excite means appealing to the younger voters. Can you explain that a little bit more?
2: Yes. Yeah, so let me complicate the story a little bit, because I think it's important for your audience to understand. The activation of Latinos in California occurred in the wake of Prop 187, right. in which there was a virulent anti-immigrant attack. It was supposedly at undocumented immigrants, but it was really aimed at all immigrants and in particular Latinos. And that activated the Latino vote so that four, five, six years later, immigrant Latinos who were naturalized were voting at a higher rate than white voters. So one of the things that that shows you is that there will be in the wake of attacks against immigrants and activated Latino vote. But it wasn't only that the labor movement was actively cultivating uh, Latinos as workers and as voters. There was a broad social movement effort in the state of California, in black communities and Asian communities, because there was a recognition that the state was becoming a new majority state. By 1998, uh, folks of color were the majority in the state of California. So why is that important? Because I think what the Biden campaign has been doing is assuming that because Trump is such a xenophobe, that the Latino vote will just kind of necessarily come their way. And they didn't put in the work, for example, that Chuck Rocha advised the Bernie campaign campaign. to put in uh, during the primaries. The Bernie campaign was able to activate younger voters, uh, labor voters, Uh, progressive voters within the Latino community. And I think that that was incredibly important. You too need to realize it didn't work as well in Texas. It didn't work as well in Texas because that's a more moderate Latino vote. But I think what the Biden campaign has gotten wrong is that they thought that there's no other venue for Latinos. They thought that advertising, uh, not just in Spanish, but with different accents. And (laughs) I think you know that what they're doing is they're cutting ads in South Florida that are in a Cuban accent. They're cutting ads for Central Florida because there's a big Puerto Rican Rican population population. there that's in a Boricua accent. And they're cutting ads for Texas in the Southwest that's in uh, in a Mexican American accent. Talk about pandering. What you really need to do is uh, cultivate relationships. Uh, Latinos will vote. For people who show up and not just at an election, but in the process of getting ready for the election. And that's what the Biden campaign hasn't done. The Biden campaign has put a lot of their resources into the white working class in the blue wall states and into black voters in the south and elsewhere. Because those are constituencies that Biden has some experience with, but he had better wise up pretty quickly because if you look at arizona where you could actually win Mm -hmm. and if you look at texas where if you ran a vigorous campaign cultivating latinos you could at least get the republicans to waste resources in that state that's right. to hold their own and if you look at the midwest which people forget which has in the citizen voting age population latinos that are about three to five percent and that could become your cushion in case black voters don't show up or some of these white working class voters that are currently excited about biden drift their way back to trump over time so this is something that has to be happening nationwide has to be happening in places where people don't automatically see the latino voter and it has to be happening well before election day and man Are we coming way too close?
0: We're in the middle of it right now. I mean, you look at Arizona, 80% of Arizonans vote before the election because they're used to it in a red state. Um, It's interesting that you say that because because, uh, if I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Hillary, actually, the one population that was not depressed, working population, those making under $50,000 a year, were... Latinos because she invested in, in Nevada, she had a, a, a good outreach director. They put a lot of money into Texas. They didn't obviously didn't win Texas um, and, and they did it you know, in exchange for putting an office in Wisconsin. Um, but it seems like there's like an overcorrection in this campaign. I, I might be completely wrong, but I mean to this to the extent that Biden actually blamed Bernie for the low Latino turnout, That he or low uh, approvals he's getting in in Florida with the Puerto Rican population. Um, Obviously, Cuban was always going to be very hard because they're more conservative leaning. Uh, It it just seems strange to me that this mindset um, seems almost uniquely Biden or Biden campaign. Like, I, I felt, am I wrong that the Clinton campaign put more resources into Latino turnout?
2: No, you're not wrong about that, but I think it's important to recognize the history. Like it or not, or like I should say, like uh, Hillary Clinton or not, uh, both she and Bill Clinton actually cultivated a relationship with Latinos, put Latinos into positions of power within the first Clinton administration, and continued to show up at the meetings of National Council of Raza, etc. In the intervening years, so when Clinton showed up in 2016, she was not an unknown quantity to people. And in fact, one of the reasons why she did better than Bernie in that constituency in the primaries in 2016 was simply because she had a history. I just really want to get back to this point that if you show up three days before election, people are, ¿Y quién es tú? Who are you? <laughs> like, where have you been, right? All my life, right? There's a, there's a, yeah. a sense of loyalty, uh, a sense of showing up that I think is valuable or valued in every community, but it's particularly valued in the Latino community. Bernie corrected for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie uh, showed up well before. He also micro-targeted. He knew that he would do quite well with the young, uh, do well in California and Arizona and Nevada, uh, knew that he would do well with the working people. And that's where they wound up targeting their resources. I think um, that Biden's both making a mistake and also, um, you know, he kind of limped his way to victory, right? I mean, he won, uh, but it wasn't like, I mean, he was running out of money and it really wasn't a great strategy, right? So what they should have done after it was clear that they had won the nomination and Sanders was conceding, et cetera, was begin to really plant their seeds and their resources into the communities where they hadn't done the outreach. What Biden seems to be counting on is a blue wall strategy rather than a sunbelt strategy. And the problem with that is that in the long run, the sunbelt's gonna make a difference. And in the long run, or even in the medium or in this election. Maybe in this election, yeah. Tying up Republican resources in defending their position in the sunbelt, that's gonna win you voters in the blue wall. Because if you're a Republican party or candidate and you're defending yourself in Texas, that's a dollar you're not spending in Wisconsin.
0: That's right, and and there's the down ballot effect too. I mean, how many folks right now feel you know they're running for office? They want to flip a seat. They they have the potential to flip a seat, uh, whether it's in in a Republican legislature in Arizona or Texas or city council or DA. And there's no energy on the ground, and so you are also poss- possibly losing a generation of great leaders because. We're, again, we're addicted to the presidential cycles. What, one, one last question right before we, we wrap up, and, and I appreciate this is, uh, I think, a fascinating conversation and, and folks seem to be loving it right now. Um, how much of it is also about just the, the deportation policy of of the Obama-Biden administration?
2: Well, that was certainly a big alienating factor. Um, you know, Obama got labeled uh, deporter-in-chief first by activists and eventually by pretty mainstream uh, latino leaders um and i think one of the concerns that's going on right now is that the obama campaign of 2008 made a lot of promises implicit and explicit to folks who were deeply concerned around immigrant rights particularly the latino community and then postponed doing anything around comprehensive immigration reform and then used the strategy i mean i really do believe that what obama did uh, to say well gosh if we show how tough we are on immigrants we're going to bring the republicans around if you show how tough you are on immigrants the republicans are just going to ask for more meanness cruelty and stupidity because that's apparently what their party has become all about and trump is the perfect representation of that so i think it uh, behooves us to make sure that we in the Latino community actually do mobilize our community to vote, even if Biden's not doing it. But make sure that we don't make the mistake that so many made with Obama, which is that you get really excited that you've elected this progressive leader, at least in your mind progressive, and you don't realize that what we need to do is to provide sales, win to a sales when he is right and hold him accountable when he is wrong. And he was dead wrong on immigration. And what we need to make sure is that Biden understands that he needs to move on immigration immediately.
0: Immediately.
2: To to stop the deportations, to protect the people who've got temporary protected status and to protect the DACA youth. And then begin queuing up uh, comprehensive immigration reform. One last word they also need to realize that Latinos are not one thing Uh, and even in places where you think they are so don't give up on Florida you know Cubans are actually a distinct minority within the Hispanic population in Florida there's this huge growth of uh, other folks from Latin America of Puerto Ricans who fled Hurricane Maria and have landed in Orlando and you can run a progressive campaign and catch that part of the population, black Floridians, progressive white Floridians, and craft a coalition that can win you Florida. And again, even if you don't win, have a lot of down ballot uh, sweep that can bring up progressive folks enough to change the state of Florida. And again, tie Republican resources up so you can win elsewhere. So I hope that these lessons are listened to. By the Biden campaign, I'm not sure they're listening to either you or I, but I think that we can make sure we try. that these lessons actually get there.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, it's it's they've got to build these coalitions, block the Republicans, help the down ballot. Because God forbid, in a couple of years, we're in the situation again. In a few years, we're in the situation again where. I mean, I don't know how how many times we have to say these courts matter, Uh, the state legislatures matter, the leadership in these states matter, especially when the presidential races could come down to courts and state legislatures and, frankly, Congress. So uh, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining uh, today. The chat loved you. Uh, Dr. Manuel Pastor, he is the uh, director of USC's Equity Research Institute. I love that.
2: I do, too. (laughs) Ha sido un placer. Gracias.
0: Gracias. (laughs) Okay. Uh, next up, we have Representative Chris Rabb from Pennsylvania's 200th District. He had a crazy day today. I can't wait to hear all about it, and I'm sure you do, too. So stick around. He'll be back in two minutes. And if you're not already, make sure to like, smash that like button, and subscribe, and join us on Patreon.com slash show for as low as $5 a month. welcome back to the nomi key show what is on his mask united for a safe and just reopening there's a very pennsylvania conversation you guys are having over there um representative chris Rabb, are you gonna wear it while you're on air are you gonna speak and sign
1: <laughs> no i wanted i wanted to share with everyone what i'm what we're dealing with in pennsylvania so
0: yeah so i again i will say this for those who missed it i drove through pennsylvania a few weeks ago and We couldn't find a place to eat that was open. The only place that was open was like nine o'clock in in New York, nine o'clock is early to eat, so. Um, And we drove into this like hotel that had a restaurant. It was very, very pretty hotel. It was hard to see at night. And we walk into the restaurant and we're expecting to eat eat outside. Like that was our whole goal. We're just gonna eat outside everywhere. And they were like, I'm so sorry, we're not doing outdoor dining. Okay, it was still warm outside. Um, And also if you can, why not? And then I walk in and there are hundreds of people uh, without masks on. And then the next day, there was this story about how the fraternities like COVID cases blew up. And I was like, that was that, those were their dads. I'm going to guess they're country club dads right there. So of course, I later saw it was happening across America. So yes. all right, well, you've got some COVID news. Rep Rab, tell us your, your latest in, in COVID news.
1: Well today would have been was supposed to be my last legislative day um, of the week but it was cut short because yet another uh, Republican colleague of mine in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives tested positive for COVID and it should be no shock um, to your viewers because most of my Republican colleagues do not wear masks and do not practice social distancing of any kind. I still see them shaking hands. They're sitting next to each other on the chamber floor or in committee. And the person who um, tested positive, Representative Paul Schemmel, is on the Judiciary Committee with me. And he was in. Uh, we were in committee together on Tuesday. Fortunately, the room is cavernous. And Republicans tend to h- huddle next to Republicans and Democrats with Democrats. I was socially distanced. From my own Democratic colleagues. Best
0: excuse for partisanship ever. Yes. <laughs> That's if, it.
1: <laughs> if there was ever a case to make for, you know, left of center, right of center, literally the aisle that the center, it is COVID. Because yeah. literally the majority of my colleagues, if you saw them on the chamber for, floor, you would not know that there's a pandemic. And they are very... Um, um, cavalier about it and we see the consequences but these folks have families they have staff republican staff are expected to work uh democratic staff we are we have told staffers in the state capitol don't come when legislators are in the capitol stay at home so we're taking all the precautions but this is what i want to this is the craziest aspect of this you see what i'm wearing right i got my nice little pocket square i got my member pin right i'm trying to look sharp and professional I wouldn't be allowed on the chamber floor dressed like this because I don't have a tie on. Uh, uh, But it's perfectly acceptable uh, to come to the chamber floor in a pandemic without a mask. No one can require me to put on a mask on the chamber floor, but they can keep me from the chamber floor if I don't have a neck
0: tie. Oh, my God. Wait, so there's no mask ordinance at all in Pennsylvania right now. I mean, I know restaurants are different. It's...
1: Now what I'm saying is legislators are exempted from that. Of
0: course they are, naturally. On the chamber, on the chamber oh floor. God. Well, you may not need to have actually primary these guys because they're 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 killing themselves off. Just it's, that my editorial commentary. Okay. <laughs> it's,
1: it, it's it's a bad scene. It's a yeah. bad scene.
0: All right. So let's talk about other news because Pennsylvania uh, was a big uh, piece of conversation this week. Once again, um hey, this is this where bad bad things happen, Naomi? Yeah, bad bad, bad, bad things. things happen in bad Philly. Things. Where yes. where you're from, of course, the two hundredth yes. district. I remember in two thousand sixteen I was not working for TYT yet, but they sent me down uh, to go cover Philly. And because we were hearing all these things like they're going to be long lines and there's going to be voter suppression. They're going to be, you know, people intimidating folks. Uh, I didn't see any of that. I also didn't see the long lines, which was even scarier to me because yes. that showed the turnout was nowhere. And I was interviewing folks and they're like, we don't know if something's wrong. Like the lines were small this morning. And last time they were around the you know, they were comparing it to Obama. So yeah. this time around, are you guys expecting? I mean, it was like a. False alarm last time. The intimidation tactics. Um, unless I'm 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 wrong there, and, and you have more information that I'm unaware of. But this time around, are you? What What are you guys doing in the legislature uh, to protect voters so that they nothing. can go vote?
1: Absolutely nothing. And all the legislation, including my own, that does address these issues are are not being voted on because when you're not in the majority, you don't decide yeah. what bills run. So what can we do outside of the legislature to ensure that anyone who wants to cast their uh, their ballot for anyone of any political stripe is protected uh, from COVID, is protected uh, from voter intimidation, um, frivolous lawsuits, et cetera. So there's always an election protection, like nonpartisan group of folks. They tend to be lawyers. They're making sure there's, if there's any irregularities, that sort of thing. If things get kind of tense between folks, Uh, or people were not supposed to be um, at the polling place or in a specific place within the polling place, Mm -hmm. you can call the cops, right? That's happened before I've seen that. It'll
0: all be fine.
1: (laughs) Right, what could go wrong? So all of those things are still on the table. Um, I am concerned about voter intimidation. I know that the city commissioner's office, which includes three elected commissioners, two Democrats and one Republican, are, are... no doubt concerned particularly in light of uh, statements made at the debate by trump that um, uh, they're going to be having poll watchers who are going to be thugs with certificates that allow them to watch what's happening at the polling place that's totally legit but how they do it is the part that's tricky so if you get a poll watchers certificate that means you can go to the polling place. You can, make sh- you, you can um, view what the election board workers are doing, the people who process the voters and all of that. If you see anything hinky, anything irregular, you can uh, call whomever it is you feel you should call. But they're not allowed to, um, to electioneer. They can't have um, uh, any kind of campaign gear on they can't tell people how to vote, they can't intimidate or otherwise engage voters. Um, But anyone pretty much can get a poll watcher certificate, um, certainly through the campaigns on both sides. So that means that folks um, who are right-wingers, the extremists are gonna empower uh, individuals to go to the highest voter turnout polling places and it's going to be the primarily or exclusively black polling places so, so and question, scare the bejesus out of little old ladies.
0: Right, exactly. So, so so, question about that is, do they have to be from the district?
1: Yes, it they have like, to be from they have to be from the county. And Philadelphia is the same as Philadelphia County. So they have to be a resident okay. of uh, Philadelphia County. But, you know, we got um, I call it the Staten Island of Philadelphia, oh, yeah. Northeast Philly.
0: For, for those of you who don't you know, Staten a, Island ain't no it ain't queens it, it is queens. It's where all the cops yes. live and so <laughs> love so, to staten you know, islanders <laughs> right right hey um
1: there are progressives everywhere just not as many as we would like no right. and to be fair
0: there is a, a a large activist community there sorry i just have to like say this no um, please an, an amazing activist community there of of folks uh of of all backgrounds there's a lot of diversity there it's just also where the cops come from so
1: And uh, that's true of Northeast Philadelphia, where you have a lot of um, uh, conservative Democrats, uh, law and order Democrats, anti-BLM Democrats. Um, And uh, so we expect voter intimidation and voter suppression um, on and leading up to November 3rd, because in Pennsylvania, for the first time ever, we now have Board of Elections satellite offices. are akin to early voting centers, but you're not technically voting, you're completing a mail-in ballot on site and handing over that sealed um, envelope with your ballot in it to be counted on election day, on or after election day. So it's not like it's gonna have um, voting machines. So it's not really an early voting center, but it's the first of its kind because of new legislation that was enacted in late 2019. And we didn't have these set up for the June primary because of COVID, civil unrest, um, and all these other issues. So uh, there, there's gonna be voter intimidation at these satellite offices. There's 17 around the city. Um, there may be lines, um, but it is the best way for folks to come out to avoid having to wait till November 3rd, where it's gonna be even worse, where they're gonna be potentially long lines and more opportunity for folks to be harassed and also could be bad weather.
0: So we really want as many
1: people to come out early and uh, vote by mail in person.
0: So you know, I have a question it's, it's about intimidation. Yeah. What is the um, what is the definition of intimidation? Like, is there an actual legal definition?
1: No, it's a term of art. Um, but if anyone who is, um, you know... Uh, uh, harassing or preventing people from exercising their franchise you know is is intimidation and a form one of many forms of voter suppression so i've worked the polls in my neighborhood in northwest philly for nearly 18 years and i've only seen it once and i believe it was in 2008 where some um uh very unseemly looking fellows not from the neighborhood showed up with their poll watcher certificates and they just looked menacing at people and they scared the bejesus out of my neighbors. Um, and that's all they did. And, um, at one point they, they got a little too close to folks and people were really getting nervous. And so I went up to them because, um, I'm a democratic committee person and I have the right as someone who also has a poll watcher certificate to ask, you know, know, who are you, you know, what are you doing? This is, you know, this is a polling place that I, I work at. And, uh, You know, they didn't want to share any information. And finally, it got to a point where someone called the cops and they had to separate me and these two guys who were three times as large as I am. It got ugly, but eventually they left. And their job was really just to look menacing, to make people question what they're doing and maybe to send people home because what can happen is, and this happened in other states in the primaries, um, people were told to leave um, from the line because the polling place Close, but most state yeah. laws say that if you're in the line you have to yeah. then they that you have a right to to remain there and vote irrespective of what time the polls close but if someone who's looking menacing or someone who looks like they're uh, a person Some of authority guy. with a clipboard yeah. you know and says oh you know um they've closed that you can't vote then they could disenfranchise hundreds or thousands of people and of course they pick those places where they know or believe how they will vote so in philadelphia my concern is they're going to go to high voter turnout black neighborhoods like ones i represent and and harass and otherwise intimidate uh, folks and the people who are going to be coming out on november 3rd are the folks least connected to technology right. they're the ones least to follow media
0: and to know
1: you know for weeks before that they could have. They could, they could get robocalls.
0: A... I mean, there's very little, barely any ro- uh, robocall oversight. They could get right. intimidation um, robocalls from who knows whom. There could be trucks uh, lining the, the neighborhood way past the, the, the pole area, you know, sending out information. They could take megaphones and say things. I mean, these are the tricks that they, they use here. They use in in other countries. And yes. we have to be much more skilled at understanding the lengths he will go or the right wing or or folks will go to suppress votes.
1: Absolutely, and what people have to understand is, people are really concerned about voter suppression this election for obvious reasons, but voter suppression is the norm.
0: Yeah,
1: It's the norm, it's actually baked into our state laws. The term grandfather to grandfather, oh, we grandfathered them into that, is a term that is rooted in racialized voter suppression. It meant that if your grandfather was not allowed to vote, you can't either. It was a way to say black people don't show up, without saying it after um, the 15th Amendment was passed to allow black men to vote. And so they, these these clever white supremacists, found terminology, which is why language is so powerful. Words matter. "Grandfathered" is a racist term. Just like marijuana is a racist term, just like all these other things that we are now are commonplace that we don't think about have really racist origins. And so the very notion of voter suppression um, is the standard. What we're trying to do now is educate people about what that standard is, why it's so racist, why it's so anti-democratic, small d, and what we can do to ensure an expanded and protected electorate, irrespective of who those voters um, cast their ballots for. So this is a nonpartisan issue, and there are Republicans, not as many as I would like, um, um, who believe that our democracy, our participatory democracy, matters. Um, but they need to speak up. This is the time yeah, where indeed time. silence is complicity, and uh, we need people of, of conscience to speak up.
0: That's exactly it. I mean, you missed—you weren't around for the opening, but I—I I had a little bit of a conversation with Joe Rogan, essentially saying just that: words matter. Our responsibility matters, especially if you're, you have millions of people watching you and you're laughing about uh, the founder of the Proud Boys coming on your show and he's just a comedian. This is all very powerful stuff and there's a legacy of letting it slide and not wanting to challenge them and call them out and complacency, as you said, complacency, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, is part of that process and part of the design. On that note, uh, before we wrap up, uh, another conversation that we have frequently on the show um, is about the minimum wage. I When I ran for office i called for a 30 minimum wage in new york for businesses over 75 employees because they can afford it in new york over 75 employees and it's not even reflective of where we should be if uh taking into inflation account inflation and other other factors you have some minimum wage reform and last week we talked about the racist history of tipping which blew up uh that conversation so tell me what's what's this uh piece of legislation that you're putting out there
1: Yesterday morning, I introduced HB 2902. It is a a new and improved version of the previous one fair wage bill. I introduced with Representative Patty Kim from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And this bill is uh, is even more expansive. It it protects uh, uh, the rights and the ability of all people to earn a minimum wage, because like we said last week about there's a sub-minimum wage that exists that a lot of people don't know about unless you're a server, right? right. And in Pennsylvania, it's $2.83, and the rest you make up on tips. Well, w- most of the uh, people who are servers are women and women of color, and the level of sexual harassment that, and sexual assault that they are exposed to just doing That's their right. jobs, particularly because they need those gratuities, they need those tips, puts them in very precarious spaces that most men can't imagine and we have found that in the seven states that have embraced one fair wage legislation, that the sexual harassment rate has dropped by 50 percent because they are not required to uh, have tips in order to, to make a living. They still get tips, but they have um, something that leads to 15, $15 minimum wage or, or higher. So my bill also provides minimum wage coverage for uh, incarcerated workers. Who do the same work as anyone else yep. but they're in a cage second uh workers with intellectual disabilities it's really important there are a lot of nonprofit corporations that um that prey on the yeah. the, the labor of intellect oh, yeah. of people with intellectual disabilities and they spin it in a way that says oh yes. this is humane we're bringing them into the workforce and social we're socializing them and giving them all these benefits yep. but mm-hmm. the reality is they need to be paid just like everyone else and the third group is a huge group. It's gig workers, folks yeah. like drivers for Uber and Lyft. They need those protections, too. And so I'm very excited about this. And apparently, according to uh, my, my, uh, my crew at One Fair Wage um, that is, has been le- leading this uh, across the country, that this is the most expansive bill in the nation. And hopefully it will be enacted into law sometime next year when Democrats take back Control. the House. And Senate in Pennsylvania.
0: We can, we're, we're counting the days, and that's why it matters to, to, to go local, uh, and it matters to pay attention to these races in all states at the legislative level. Um, real quick, before, I mean, I don't know if you have a couple more minutes, but I I, I we had so many questions. Um, there's this video of Katie Porter going, Representative Katie Porter, Porter going viral. Uh, Dorsey, can we play that clip real quick? Do you oh,
3: know
2: yeah, what this good. number is? <laughs> yep. I Does it I, ring any I bells?
3: But
1: I, I think you're referring to my compensation in some way.
3: In some way. This was your compensation in 2017 for being CEO of Celgene. And that's a lot of money. It's 200 times the average American's income and 360 times what the average senior gets on Social Security. Now of that 13 million, about 2.1 million came from your company hitting yearly earning targets. Um, And more than half of the bonus formula was based on those targets. Any increase in the price of Revlimid would also increase your bonus by increasing earnings. Isn't that right, Mr. Ellis?
1: If revenues
0: increased and expenses did not, then earnings would be enhanced. Thank you.
3: Mr. Ellis, in fact, the Oversight Committee found that if you hadn't increased the price of Revlimid, you wouldn't have gotten your bonus. Mr. Ellis, do you know how much you personally received in bonuses over two years, the last two years, just because Celgene raised the price of this one drug, Revlimid,
2: I receive
1: very generous compensation, but I don't know the exact number that you're referring to.
3: In fact, you personally received half of a, half a million dollars personally just by tripling the price of Revlimid. So to recap here, the drug didn't get any better. The cancer patients didn't get any better. You just got better at making money. You just refined your skills at price gouging. And to be clear, the taxpayers spent three point
0: three billion
3: on Revlimid. Yeah. I
0: mean, this was a beautiful illustration of something that's unfortunately across government, um, happening yes. left and right. And and I'm I'm just curious. Like at the state level, have you had any interactions like this with with folks who are trying to, you know, get cleared for tax tax? Uh, you know, this is basically how Donald Trump made his money too was through using the government uh to make more money
1: again uh just like voter suppression uh rigging the system to help uh, elites in in the private sector etc is the norm mm-hmm. in pennsylvania we do not have a progressive uh, tax for for state income tax so um that's a problem and there are there's something called the delaware loophole where pennsylvania-based corporations Um, set up shop in Delaware on paper all their operations their employees their products and services are all in Pennsylvania and they avoid paying state income tax which means the rest of us have to pay what they don't right and all the things that we need all the things it's the pound of cure versus the ounce of prevention we are paying for which makes 90% of our budget around um, human services that go to our most vulnerable communities Uh, public education on all levels and putting people in cages. Those are the top three things that represent 90% of our $36 billion state budget.
0: Putting people in cages.
1: Putting people, 46,000 people in cages. And we have the highest number, highest population of people who have life without the opportunity for parole in the entire country. No other state. So people like to make fun of the South or wherever, Pennsylvania has the largest population of people who are sentenced to death by incarceration of any state. And it's also worth noting, to your point about um, businesses who can afford to pay a living wage to their workers, there are a lot of business owners who want to do that and are doing that. They're not spotlighted as much. But the average size business in America has four employees what you sought to do about businesses that have 75 75 isn't actually it's a big business but our government defines small business as businesses that have fewer than 500 it's insane yeah it's insane so the words we use as regular people make sense we consider small small it's the mom and pop on the corner what government considers small is hundreds of employees for uh, in a corporation that makes hundreds of millions of dollars potentially and that does us an injustice because when we expect financial assistance during the pandemic to help our neighborhood businesses and it doesn't come to us and we scratch our heads, well, how come it hasn't reached our neighborhood businesses? It's because they're helping the quote unquote, small businesses that are actually quite uh, well off. Yep. Because the, their terms for the things that we think are obvious are skewed towards you know the more wealthy entities and they're and their lackeys.
0: And, of course, which, which your, your uh, bill addresses, who do they consider employees? I mean, so many of these tech companies, if you look at them on paper, they have 15 employees. <laughs> yeah, right. there are these gig workers, of course, that are not getting uh, full benefits and barely a living wage and have to pay fees on top of it. Um, Chris thank you rep rab sorry (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) i broke the rule (laughs) rep rab (laughs) thank you for joining us again this week i can't wait to speak next week and uh well you know good luck i i hope you get a a chance to get tested um immediately for covid and that you are healthy and well and your entire team is and your caucus and dare i even say it the republicans too so
1: (laughs) thank you i appreciate it
0: all right take care we'll see you next week All right, guys, we have a couple of YouTube chat shout-outs. Mariposa, thank you for the love. Uh, Mariposa says, proud boys, say in the same clip, choke a T-word. I am trans. My community faces constant violence. Joe Rogan is dumb, in parentheses, uninformed, on trans issues, and that's a very dangerous equation for us. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Thank you, Mariposa. And Duke of Bread... (laughs) uh quote Nomi is based CEO of Antifa okay (laughs) listen if you're on the streets and I've I've, this is a message I got from somebody um and then I saw it on on Twitter too Uh, Antifa isn't questioning whether or not Joe Rogan should be platforming a white supremacist leader And I think these are the conversations we have to just like, it just has to be very clear at this moment. Uh, Special love to all of our moderators in the chat. And to, of course, Harvey K. Uh And tomorrow, we are going to be back with another Fem Friday panel. It's going to be spicy, I promise you. It's going to be really, really good. Uh, we're going to dig in a little bit more about what it means to be a feminist, and, and what does it mean to be a socialist, and what does it mean to be a socialist man that understands socialist feminism. That is where we are starting in our lessons, and we're going to build up, uh, because... YouTube is overwhelmingly male. (laughs) So I see where you guys are, and I'm really, really grateful that you're into these conversations uh, because I'm watching. All right, have a wonderful night, a wonderful day, and we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern right here at the Nomiki Show.